Greetings, church. It's uh, such a joy for me to continue leading you in our study of Romans chapter 9. And it's my aim to take us through to the end of the chapter today, as this will be our last life group study this year. What I would like to do today is to read through the entire chapter, stopping as we do so, to remind you of some of the observations we've made during the past four episodes. In and I really want you to grasp the truths Paul is teaching in this chapter. We really want you to see what the scripture says. It's not what I say or what Ian says that matters. It's what the Apostle Paul said that matters. And our job is to try and uh, help you to see and understand what he said. So let's begin in verse 1, remembering that chapter 9 continues straight on from chapter 8. Paul writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Why did Paul have such sorrow and anguish? It was because of the spiritual state of Israel at the time. It was because of their rejection of the gospel and their rejection of Jesus, the Christ. The Christ whom Paul says in verse 5 is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This is one of the clearest statements about our Lord Jesus' deity in Scripture. He is in His humanity an Israelite, yet He is at the same time God over all, blessed forever. In other words, He is God incarnate, God in the flesh. Let's go on to verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all the children of Abraham, sorry, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. The fact that not all Israelites will be saved, that some are perishing, does not mean that God's word has failed. Paul begins in this particular passage we've just read, his explanation of why this is true. Even though Israel is God's chosen nation, chosen out of all the nations of the world, called by God to himself, set apart for himself, God's elect nation that was treated by him like no other nation. Not every individual in the nation is part of God's chosen, holy elect people. Not everyone who is an Israelite by ancestry is an Israelite spiritually. And it is what one is spiritually that really matters. Just because someone is a physical descendant of Abraham does not mean he is a child of Abraham in God's eyes and therefore an heir of the covenant promises God gave to Abraham. Ancestry has nothing to do with being part of God's chosen people. Only those who are born of God will ever be considered part of God's people. 
That means only those who are born because of God's promise. Let's continue reading in verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Paul now brings another factor that determines who God's elect is, who the true Israel is, the Israel of God. He brings in the idea of God's choice, a choice that has nothing to do with a person's works. Note how Paul's words rule out the idea that God rejected Esau and chose Jacob because of anything they did. He said, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. The fact that the older would serve the younger was not because of their works, but because of God's choice. Paul makes it clear here. God's election is not based on what one does, whether good or bad. The fact that one has done something good does not result in election, nor does the fact that one has done something bad result in rejection. Paul says here it is not because of works. What is it based on? Paul tells us it is based on the one who calls, that is, on God himself. Note the word calls. What an important and yet so easily overlooked word this is. This is the third place in this letter where Paul raises this matter of God's call. The first is in Romans chapter 1, verses 6 to 7. This is where Paul addressed the letter, and this is how he did so. He addressed the letter to, and I quote, You who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. You see, Paul wrote this letter to a specific group of people in Rome who he said were called to belong to Jesus Christ and called to be saints, God's holy set-apart people. A group of people in Rome whom he said were loved by God just as Jacob was. Then in Romans 8, chapter 29 to verse 30, he brought up this matter of God's call again. He wrote, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In saying that the believers in Rome were loved of God and called to belong to Jesus Christ and called to be saints, he was saying that they were amongst those whom God foreknew and predestined. In other words, God's elect. You see, God calls those whom he elects. The Greek word translated in our New Testaments as church is the word ekklesia. This word literally means called out from. In the New Testament, the word church is used to refer corporately to those whom God has called out from humanity to be his chosen holy people. It is used to refer to the corporate body of those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, those who are loved by God and set apart by him for himself. 
It is a word that is used throughout the book of Acts and throughout the epistles. Even Jesus used it. He said, I will build my church. Can you see just how central this idea of God's call is in the New Testament? Do you see how the idea of election comes through even in the title given in the New Testament to God's people? The title, the church. They are his called out ones, called because he foreknew them and predestined them. Let's make another observation. Note the word purpose in verse 11. It says there, though they were not yet born, that's uh, Esau and Jacob, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Paul refers to God's purpose in the context of God's election. God has a purpose in election. In fact, his purpose is the reason for election. What Paul is saying here is this. In order that God's purpose in election might continue, in other words, not be thwarted, his election is not based on man's works, but on God himself. Why? If it was based on man's works, it would fail. It would not be fulfilled because men fail. For God's purpose in election to stand, his election must be based on God and his call and not on man and his works, whether they are good or bad. This is absolutely clear in what Paul wrote here. Let's carry on to verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. You see, is God unjust to choose one and reject another before they have done anything good or bad and therefore apart from their works? Paul says, by no means. And he uses the strongest possible Greek term. We could translate it this way. Absolutely not. Or not in a thousand years. He categorically dispels the thought that, is un, that it is unjust for God to do this. Verse 15 starts with the word for. For he, that's God, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Paul is quoting God here. This is not just Paul saying this. God has made it abundantly clear that he will have mercy on whom he has mercy and compassion on whom he has compassion. It's as simple as that. It's absolutely dependent on God. His mercy cannot be earned. It cannot be demanded. It is entirely up to him. Let's carry on. Verse 16, Paul says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. What is Paul referring to in this verse? What is it that depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy? It is what Paul has been talking about all along. Being part of God's people, part of the spiritual Israel, one of Abraham's true children, one of God's elect, his beloved. Note what Paul says. Being part of God's elect people does not depend on human will or exertion. Let's stop for a moment and let's give that some time to sink in. Paul says it does not depend on human will. Could he be any clearer on the matter? Surely 
that should put to rest all argument that it does depend on human will. What does it depend on? It depends on God. It depends on God who shows mercy. To whom does he show mercy? We saw it in verse 15. Those whom he chooses to show mercy. In other words, being one of Abraham's children, part of Israel, one of God's saints, his elect, the church, this favored, blessed group Paul was speaking about in chapter 8, who is predestined for glory and will never be separated from the love of God, does not depend on human will, but on God's will. This is the whole point Paul is making here. God's election is not based on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's not based on works, but on Him who calls. Could Paul have been any clearer? But oh, how this offends people. We want it to depend on us. We want it to depend on what we do in some shape or form. We want to determine our own destinies. We don't want God to do that for us. We feel robbed of our autonomy. This is exactly why this doctrine, probably more than any others, stirs up such emotion. It really cuts to the core of the root issue of man's sinfulness, his desire to be self-governing and autonomous from God, his desire to forge his own destiny and be self-sufficient. As we will see at the end of the chapter, it was this very attitude that stopped the Israelites Paul was grieving over from being saved. Let's go on to verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul takes this teaching even further in these two verses. He has established the fact that God has mercy on whom he will have mercy, but now here in these verses he talks about hardening. Hardening is the opposite of showing mercy. God's mercy leads to salvation, God's hardening to destruction. Why does he bring this matter of hardening up here? He does so to show us that this too is a matter determined solely by God's will. Not only was Jacob's election based on God's will, not his works, but Esau's rejection was also based not on his works, but on God's will. It was all based on God's will before they were even born. Paul brings up Pharaoh. He was a very proud man. He did not believe the word of God. He was extremely obstinate towards God. He hardened his heart towards God. He steadfastly resisted God's will. There was nothing in his heart that moved him to submit to God. Not only did Pharaoh in his pride harden his own heart and refuse to submit to God, but God hardened it for him. Why did he do so? It was because of his purpose. Whether God chooses to show mercy and therefore call someone or to harden someone so they are destroyed is determined by his purpose. It's all to ensure that his purpose continues and that it is established and fulfilled. Note the word purpose in verse 17. It says, For this very purpose I have raised you up. God had a purpose in dealing with Pharaoh as he did. 
What was his purpose? That God might show his power in him and that God's name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Do you think God could have softened Pharaoh's heart if he wanted to? Certainly he could have. Did God not say in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26 to his elect people, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God promised to remove their hearts of stone, their rock hard hearts and give them hearts of flesh. In other words, hearts that are soft. God didn't do this in the case of Pharaoh. Why? He had a purpose in not doing so. He wanted to show his power in Pharaoh so that his name would be proclaimed in all the earth. You see, God has mercy on whom he wills to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wills to harden. He does it this way, so his purpose and election will remain. Let's go to verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Paul knew how people were going to react to what he was teaching. He knew that they were going to say, how can God judge anyone if he is hardening them? If he has predetermined these things according to his purpose, after all, are his purposes not being fulfilled? Was his will not done, even in the case of Pharaoh? Why then does he find fault? Does Paul back down because of this challenge to what he's teaching? Does he try to soften his stance? Does he try to placate his reader? Absolutely not. Look at how he responds to this contention. In verse 20, he wrote this, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? You see, he doesn't back off at all. He simply reminds us of who we are and who God is. He reminds us that God is sovereign and because he's sovereign, he has a right to do as he pleases with what he creates. Has he no right to do with humanity as he pleases? Can God not make out of the same lump of clay one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Of course he can. In verse 22, Paul continues, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called? not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. He refers to two kinds of vessels here. Vessels of wrath prepared for, or we could say made fit and ready for, destruction. And vessels of mercy, whom he has prepared beforehand for glory. And he asks a question. A question that brings up another aspect of God's dealings with man. That is, his patience and long-suffering. He asks this question to the people who are accusing God of doing wrong because he has mercy on whom he wills to have mercy and he hardens whom he wills to harden. The people who are raising all the objections. He asks them, what will you say about God if he desiring to show his wrath and make his power known as he did in Pharaoh, chooses instead to exercise patience and endure for a time 
the vessels of wrath who are ripe for destruction rather than just going ahead and giving them what they deserve. What if God did that? How do you think people would respond? Do you know how they would respond? People do it all the time. They would say, why does God allow evil in the world? If he is a good God, why does he not punish these evil men? Why does he let them continue to prosper in their evil ways? Have you ever heard that before? Because I certainly have. You see, no matter what God does, men will accuse him of being unjust and unrighteous. If he hardens the vessels of wrath that are ready for destruction and punishes them as he did Pharaoh, they say, why does he judge them when all they are doing is what his will determined they would do? If he doesn't punish them, but instead shows patience and long suffering towards them, then they accuse him of being unjust as well. He can't win. The point is this. God does do this. He patiently endures vessels of wrath even though he has a strong desire to show his wrath and to make his power known, he holds back his wrath. He waits patiently, even though everything within him desires to punish them. Why does he do this? Paul tells us he does it in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. He does it for the sake of those he has prepared beforehand for glory, those whom he has foreknown, his elect, the vessels of mercy, those whom he has called both Jew and Gentile. He does it so that he can make known the riches of his glory to them. Why does he want them to know the riches of his glory? So they might believe in him and because they believe in him, obey him and be saved. Consider the story of Noah and the flood. Peter says that God waited patiently in the days of Noah. He showed incredible long-suffering in the face of all the evil that was going on. He restrained his wrath. He held it back for over 100 years. Why did he do so? He did so to give Noah time to complete building the ark in which he would be saved. He did it in order that the vessels of mercy, Noah and his family, would not perish along with all the others. Let me point out something else from these verses. Note that Paul does not say here that God readied the vessels of wrath for destruction. He just says that they were fitted for destruction. However, he does specifically say that God prepared the vessels of mercy beforehand for glory. You see, as far as the preparation of the vessels of wrath are concerned, there is no mention of God's involvement. But there is as far as the vessels of mercy are concerned. God can leave the vessels of wrath to their own devices. They willingly prepare themselves for destruction. However, He cannot leave the vessels of mercy to their own devices. No, He must prepare them for glory. If He didn't, they would never be prepared for it. What is the lesson here? That salvation is the result of God's work, whereas man's wickedness and resulting destruction is not. Let's move on to verse 25. As we do, we will see Paul quote several Old Testament scriptures. Why does he do this? He does so to show in yet another way that God's word has not failed, which is what he's been trying to show all along. 
that everything that has taken place, the fact that many in the nation of Israel are not going to be saved, and that many Gentiles who were never considered to be a part of God's elect are going to be saved, is actually a fulfillment of God's word, not a sign of its failure. Let's look at verse 25. Paul continues, As indeed he, that's God, says in Hosea, Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not my beloved, I will call beloved. This is referring to Gentiles whom Israel said were not God's people and whom they considered were not beloved by God. Note the word beloved. What did God say? He said, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. The Israelites considered the Gentiles to be hated by God. They considered themselves to be the only ones God loved. Yet God through the prophet Hosea says that's not the way it really is. There are Gentiles whom God loves and whom He will call His people. Note also the words, I will call. God says it twice. He repeats it. He reiterates it. Note the emphasis on the words, I will. He is emphasizing His will is at work, not theirs. His will is the determining factor, not theirs. God continues to speak in verse 26. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Once again, this is referring to Gentiles. The fact that Gentiles would be saved, that they would be part of God's people, His elect, was prophesied in Scripture. God foretold through the prophets that Gentiles would be saved. Why did He do so? Because this was always His plan. It was not as some people suppose His plan be. He foreknew from the foundation of the world every Gentile person He had chosen to be a vessel of mercy and would therefore call. He then declared through the prophets what He had decided to do beforehand. Verse 27, And as Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out a sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. The fact that many Israelites would not be saved was not the result of God's plan failing. It was not the result of God's word failing. Rather, it was the fulfillment of what God foretold through the prophets. Remember what Paul said in verse 6. It's not as though God's word has failed. Not all Israel are Israel. God said through the prophet that only a remnant of Israel would be saved. Only a small portion of Abraham's descendants and Isaac's descendants and the children of Israel are in fact the Israel of God. Who is the remnant that the Lord of hosts left? They are those in Israel whom He chose to have mercy on, call to Himself and save. The rest, as we will see in chapter 11, were hardened and therefore perished. Verse 30, Paul asks, What shall we say then? In other words, what shall we conclude from all that Paul has written? Shall we conclude that God is unjust? No, not at all. This is what we should conclude that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. 
but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by, based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Note, Paul does not say that the Gentiles, as in all of them, have attained or laid hold of this righteousness. He says Gentiles, as in some of them, have laid hold of it. Not all have done so, but some have. On the other hand, Israel as a nation failed to do so, even though they were pursuing it. Only a remnant, those whom the Lord had mercy on and left, laid hold of it. Remember, Paul himself was an Israelite and one of the remnant the Lord spared. Note also that the Gentiles laid hold of this righteousness when they were not pursuing it. Righteousness, being right with God, was not even something they had considered. Whereas Israel, who were pursuing it zealously, day in and day out, failed to gain what they were seeking. Doesn't this prove what Paul wrote in verse 16 when he said, So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Why did Israel as a nation, even though they were God's chosen nation, fail to arrive at the righteousness they were pursuing? Paul tells us, they failed because they thought it would be achieved through the works of the law. They stumbled over the stumbling block who is Christ. Why was Christ a stumbling block to them? Their pride. They believed they could save themselves. They believed they could earn a favorable position with God. They believed that if they were diligent enough and did all the works the law required them to do, they would arrive at what they were pursuing. They did not want to rely on someone else to give them what they sought. They did not feel they needed Christ to be right with God. They believed they were quite capable on their own. The notion that righteousness was dependent solely on Christ and was by faith in Him and not their works was an offense to them. They prided themselves in their righteous deeds. They did so because they failed to understand and accept the words of Isaiah 64, 6, where Isaiah said, All our righteous deeds are like a filthy rag. Had they understood and accepted this fact, they would have realized that there was nothing they could do to make themselves right with God. They would have looked to Christ for righteousness instead of working hard to earn it for themselves. What made Gentiles lay hold of this righteousness, which is by faith? Why did those who were not pursuing righteousness and were not seeking God lay hold of it when those who were pursuing it did not? They believed the gospel of Christ, the gospel Paul expounded in the first eight chapters of this letter. They believed that they were sinners, powerless to save themselves, and that Christ had died for their sins. They put their faith in Christ and not in their works, they believed that their works could not make them right with God. They simply believed the promise of the gospel, that if they had faith in Christ, they would be saved. This leads me to ask a question. If it is merely a matter of faith and unbelief that determines salvation, as Paul seems to be saying here, why did he go to all the trouble of writing what he wrote about election in this chapter? 
it seems pointless and counterproductive for him to have done so. If the only thing that matters is a person's choice to either believe or reject the gospel, then why did Paul bother to raise all the points that we've been discussing during the last four episodes? The points that have raised such consternation amongst us. Surely he could have jumped from verse 5 to verse 30 and left out all that was in between. He could have just described his grief over his kinsmen and said, but it's not as though God's word has failed. It's just that they did not believe the gospel and so rejected the Messiah and then left it at that. If he had done that, none of us would have had any problems. We would have been through this chapter in one episode. All would have been well. We would have all been very happy, but he didn't do that. He took his readers down a very difficult road and presented things that he knew would cause controversy and objections. Why did he do so? Well, he knew that there was more to the matter than just a person's choice to believe or not believe. He knew that God's choice was also involved. He knew that unless he took the church down this difficult road, God's saints would not have the depth of understanding about their salvation that God wanted them to have. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit to do so. And it's so important for us to realize this. We cannot ignore or try to explain away all that Paul told us in verses 6 to 29 just because of what he said in verses 30 to 33, as some people do. All of it is true. What he wrote from verses 6 to 29 is true, and so are these last few verses of the chapter also true. It's not one or the other. They all work together in perfect harmony. It is an understanding of that harmony that we so desperately need. And Paul, knowing this, will give us further insight into it in the next chapter, which we will study together in the new year. As we break for the Christmas holidays, let's not forget what we have learned together as we've gone through this chapter. And let's continue seeking the Lord for understanding of this great and wonderful mystery of God. May God bless you.